Hey everybody, this is Justin, the audio producer at We Eat Art. We want to get back to airing these interviews once a week, but we could use some help, so we set up a Patreon. We need a little cash to keep this train running on time. We're also hoping we could venture out into different types of episodes, like live guest panels, interviews in other cities besides New York and LA, and guided museum walkthroughs. You can donate and get all sorts of goodies, like exclusive episodes, stickers, zines, and of course you'll be secure in knowing that you're helping us continue to serve up sumptuous episodes of interviews with savory artists. Head on over to patreon.com backslash we eat art. Again, that was patreon.com backslash we eat art. I have a balloon because we threw a birthday party. Excellent. I had a marshmallow <laughs> coat. Look, it's like the beginning of a John Ehrenberg video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my signature trick is a balloon at the beginning. <laughs> That's it. You got me. It's the end of the podcast. Very concise. If only anyone could see it. I'm John Mejias. I'm in New York City. And I'm Zach Smith, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... You can see that this thing is totally constructed, but you just buy it anyway. It's sort of like this weird counter-purposes feeling where you shouldn't buy into the story or the fiction, but you almost can't help it. You get seduced. And today we are in Manhattan, New York City, and we're talking with John Ehrenberg. About... Your impulse is always to kind of clean everything up, make everything make sense, have everything we need. You know, I think it's sort of maybe just an interesting place to be where you're almost making a solid, simplified whole, but then you keep getting pulled out and you keep getting drawn back in. I'm interested in that. I can just see like a big white modernist looking building behind you guys in the in the Skype thing. And then I see a weird baby face smushed into the corner in the cabinet. And now oh, okay. you've moved, you've revealed a disturbing face. man. What's the baby face? On the bookshelf, it's got oh, two it. eyes. It's sort of a cyclotic. Yeah, it's sort of like an old man baby face, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of in the middle, maybe. It's got its eyes closed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you were a baby. <laughs> Where are you so how from? does this work? We just where are you from? Where, where are you from, sir? So I grew up in, in New York. I grew up in Manhattan, actually. Weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one guy. So which part? <laughs> On 68th Street. Were you like one of those super cool, hyper sophisticated kids when you got to college? Because you're like, oh yeah, we're gonna go over and see Mark Rubeau play over at Brownies. Were you that kid? No, I mean, maybe. I went to Stuyvesant for high school, and I feel like maybe 10 or 15 people went to my college from there. So that was kind of nice. So you, you, know, you totally were. It made it easy to sort of just like... You're like, welcome to Manhattan, Arkansas. Yeah, let me show <laughs> you around, right? I don't think I did any gloating about that, but yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I, I was sort of, have been exposed to some stuff, sure. Yeah. So what was your experience of the city like as a child? I mean, the city is a big part of some of these movies and you were right in it. It wasn't a vacation for you. Yeah, I mean, I, that was what was normal. The cities do seem to kind of keep coming in again. The sets, a lot of the sets of these tend to be nighttime cities. I think there's a lot of New York in there. And in some ways the city just does feel very comfortable. I definitely feel like I have a pretty close relationship to it. It feels like a very familiar place. You know, I never sort of had to kind of get used to it. It was always something that felt intuitively familiar. I sort of like walking around. There's something about the city at night too. It feels so different. And it's often at night that the cities are kind of showing up in these videos. And there's something like really quiet at night, so even like downtown, like the financial district, you know, sort of these weird little nooks and crannies in New York where there's kind of like these narrow streets when things are totally desolate and really quiet. I mean, it almost feels like a very personal, private space in a, in a strange way. Yeah, like there's this sort of empty DeCurico thing going on in some parts of, even in Manhattan, which is so strange, because you think of it as being like always active. But if you live there, you find out that like, you can totally just be alone completely at like 10 p.m. if you're in a certain neighborhood. Yeah. DeCurica is someone I've kind of always really been excited about too. Have you ever lived anywhere else besides New York? Really just for school and like residencies and all that. You know, that's pretty much it. I've mostly kind of gravitated back to New York pretty fast. So. Are you gonna stay here forever? I would like to, you know, if I can sort of figure out how to make everything work. Yeah, I guess we'll see. So what do you think of Aravistes like John Mejias from Long Island and Zach Smith from D.C.? <laughs> I support Aravistes. Come to your city and like are like, yeah, we're city dwellers. Yeah, yeah, I have no ill will towards <laughs> Aravistes. 
I'm a fan. So you went to Stuyvesant, for people who don't know, that's like a smart kids public school in New York. Yeah, it's like a math and science focused high school. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have to take the test to get in? Yeah. Where'd you go from there? Where'd you go to college? I went to Brown for college. And then I went to Yale for painting right before Zach, I guess. Did you make art at Brown? Yeah, I kind of did maybe equally painting and film. You know, I was like shooting on 16 millimeter film back then. And I was sort of doing probably equal amounts of each. Oh, you've been doing this for a while. Yeah, I mean, I kind of focused on the painting thing for a while after that. And then the film background started creeping back in more and more. Artists always were making art since they're three years old. But at what point did you say to yourself, I'm going to be an artist. It's time to tell everyone and make a plan. How did that come about? I mean, I was always doing it and pretty involved in it, but I think it seemed like a very irrational thing to do. You know, maybe in the beginning of college and then maybe by the middle of college, it just felt like that's what I had to do when I started college. You know, I was like kind of wavering. Didn't the idea that you couldn't make a living sort of make it irrational? <laughs> yeah, that was the scary part, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I was kind of like resisting it a little bit in terms of going into it full blown. Sort of in college, I started kind of doing it even more and more. And Were there other people at Brown making art or were you like the star of that little program at the time? No, there was a, it was an interesting place to be at that time. My major was art semiotics, which was part art, part film, part theory. You know, there were a bunch of people who sort of went through that program and, and have done pretty well. And you know, sort of an interesting mix of different disciplines. It sounds cool. That was a major that they offered. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was two different departments. It sounds like a terrifying joke major. Yeah, it was It was like a thing at the time. It was partly art and then partly this other major called modern culture and media, which is like film and like film theory and like, like cultural theory, basically. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But it's just like coming home and telling your parents that. Yeah, I mean, my parents have been pretty good about being supportive, they're psychologists. Right. You know, oh, I never, no. I never know how that factors in, but you know, I think like they were always interested in art. Like I would hang out at museums when I was a kid, so that I mean, they were concerned, you know, about <laughs> going into it. So they're psychologists, but uh, we're but concerned. I think they were supportive overall. You know, they were pretty good sports about it. What was it like being raised by two psychologists? You know, sort of the same thing as New York. It just felt like normal. Um, it felt you normal. Never knew. I mean, I, yeah, it wasn't like I had anything to compare it to. I mean, it's definitely there, but it's I, hard to say what it what it did. I can remember being a kid and going to other people's houses and realizing, oh, we do things differently. These people like don't eat rice and beans every day or just something different. Did that ever happen where like, you realized? I mean, I really, parents? I kind of had like no rules pretty much at all as a kid. You know, like I didn't have a bedtime really. There was a lot of freedom, which can be problematic in some ways, but was was mostly sort of nice. I don't think my parents ever really tried to analyze me strictly, but there was definitely that worldview. What'd you do with all this freedom? Did you jump off the roof at two in the morning or something? No, I think I was pretty mild-mannered, actually. I had nothing to rebel against in a way, and I wasn't particularly rebellious, you know? Did your parents ever reveal to you that we were worried about all this freedom, and they were just, yeah, you could do it? My guess is that, you know, they're both psychologists, and so, like, having your child be an artist is like living the dream of the pyramid, right? One generation is, like, farmers, and then you, like, immigrants, and then you're gangsters, then you're like garment workers, and then you get to be psychologists, which is like a highly educated professional job. And then finally you make kids that can be artists, right? Yeah. Like that seems to be the impression I'm getting, that they were like, great, you're artists. The Ehrenberg line is now complete. No, I don't know if it's quite that easy. I mean, I think they were definitely concerned. You know, they were sort of like, <laughs> well, but like, you know, maybe you could do something practical too. Or, I think they're excited about art, but they were also nervous. They we're cool with it overall. I think my dad skipped a few of those steps too. Like my dad grew up really poor and kind of actually was work, you know, kind of like sewing sweaters and all this stuff. His sort of education was spotty. And he grew up in France, but then he eventually kind of moved here when he was around 20 and then went to school. So he kind of spans a couple of those generations in a weird way. Gregory Cruzen's parents were also psychologists or psychiatrists. And he also makes like surreal, hard-to-place images that are dreamlike. Do you feel like there might be like a Jungian thing there or like a thing about like analyzing, looking at your dreams or looking at like unreadables? Because you said it was a Rorschach test earlier, right? Yeah, I think that there's something in there. I don't know if it's like particularly Jungian or not. I guess there's an introspection, you know? I mean, I think my parents are curious and introspective and... Yeah, they definitely seem like introspective, not just in like the symbols, but also like the pace of the music and the pans are very like 
There's a slow time kind of thing, mm-hmm. a thoughtful pace. There's sort of like a dreamlike quality that I don't know if it comes out of the psychology thing or not. I mean, I guess, you know, maybe that's too simple to sort of say one way or the other, but... All right, let's not press it then. It's an interesting idea. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Yeah, I don't want to say no to that. It could be. I mean, I don't do that. So then, okay, you went to Yale for grad school. Right. How'd you like that? I had mixed feelings. I don't know if it was quite an ideal fit for me. What was the problem? Well, I don't know. I I think I was straight out of college. I was really young. You know, I started when I was like 22. So I was really trying to do lots of things at once. I was still thinking a lot about narrative. I was kind of doing a lot of experimenting. And the program felt a little bit uptight, especially for me at that point in time. You know, I was really sort of just trying lots of things out. You know, I sort of didn't really want to settle on one thing at that point. That was maybe part of it. I didn't really click that much with a lot of the teachers. And how did that make you feel, John? (laughs) (laughs) So-so, I would say. It kind of had some mixed feelings about that. But it was okay. I mean, you know, there were a lot of smart people there. I mean, there were things that were good, but I think, like, my college experience was very kind of, like, nurturing and supportive, and the grad school thing was definitely very different. Okay, because that actually matches something that I always thought about Yale, and I was kind of interested how it happened to you, because I felt like people who had gone to undergrad in New York or L.A., showed up at Yale and it was no big deal. And then the people who had showed up from almost anywhere else felt like they had been dropped out of the airplane with no parachute. And I thought, well, you're from New York, but you didn't go to school there, so. Yeah. You had that feeling. Yeah, I don't know. If I had gone when I was older and things were just kind of more fleshed out, I think it would have been really different. So I think a lot of it is just that too. You know, I just kind of went straight from undergrad. But I think at the time, having sort of like a more encouraging, kind of nurturing environment, I just just did a bit better in that situation. If you go to Yale and you're like, okay, I'm halfway there, help me, you're fucking screwed. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to make my art once in a while, have a crit, and then usher them out of my room, then you'll be okay. But I think Uh you show up expecting to be taught. I mean, I think I was sort of like a raw material at that point, and I did tighten up a bit. I came in and I... Feeling pretty confident, and then I think I got a little dismantled when I was there. So you got out of school. What did you do then? And then how long did it take you to get to a place where you felt like you were making stuff that you liked? I think it took a couple years. Right after school, I kind of worked doing design for animation. Yeah, didn't you work for Roz Chast? Oh, yeah. I did a project like for a TV pilot for her that never actually became a show. And I had to kind of like copy her style of drawing. I drew the backgrounds for this pilot. Was there a tryout for that? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I had to do a couple sample backgrounds and it worked out. And before that, I was working on this show called Head Trip where MTV had like done this video music awards where they had the rights to use the faces of all these celebrities. So they made the most of that and made this animated show with sort of cartoon bodies and backgrounds and like, and the photos of the celebrities. You know, I was actually straight out of grad school, but I kind of was just designing all these backgrounds and these figures, and it was a good gig. So I did a bunch of animation for a few years after school. Did the show get aired? Yeah, yeah, it was totally got aired. This was a long time ago. This was in, uh, like, 1999 or 2000. We can probably YouTube these and find your backgrounds there. Maybe. Put them there. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I haven't actually <laughs> tried to look for them on YouTube. It's been, it's been a while, but it's worth a shot. A kid I went to school with, he did the heads for, uh, remember Celebrity Deathmatch? Yeah, yeah, that was happening at the same time. Yeah, they were probably like, this is great. Big heads. <laughs> that's the future. <laughs> Giant celebrity heads and art students drawing back as that's the future. That was the thing at the time, yeah. No, there were some interesting people on that other show, on Celebrity Deathmatch. That, w- that was like a big moment for MTV animation, and then it just all went to reality TV, and they kind of disbanded that whole department. This also seems like something that has to do with your later practice, though. Something that happens in your videos is backgrounds become foregrounds. There's a figure moving through a landscape, but then the landscape becomes important often in the narrative, or you get close-ups of it all of a sudden, or you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think the landscape often becomes like a really important character in the videos. And I mean, there's one video that's just two landscapes that are going through these kind of fluid transitions. I think fluidity seems to be like a real theme that comes up again and again. Landscapes that kind of almost feel like people, people that sort of turn into landscapes. Things are kind of constantly in flux. And it's creepy, and it's funny. Do you want us to feel creeped out? Do you want us to laugh? Yeah, I want both those things. (laughs) And a lot of the fiction that I'm a a fan of sort of has both, you know, like there's an uncanny thread through the videos and a lot of the fiction that I'm into and like Gogol, you know, sort of has both of those things. You know, there's a strangeness to it, but it's also just absurd and and funny. And, and you know, I sort of like it when, when things are kind of right on that line. If it's always scary, it's a horror movie. And if it's always funny, it's a comedy you don't know whether you're supposed to laugh or be scared, 
then that's like an uncanny place and that's like a David Lynch movie. Mm-hmm. Balancing something. Like, because I remember McCarthy would be like, I think their videos are really funny. And the earlier, I think there's ones that I saw that with some more animals in them that I haven't seen lately that aren't on your site or, or around. But like, at the first, you're like, maybe I'm supposed to laugh or maybe it's just performance art. So I think it's funny. But then after a while, you're like, it's funny. Like you can see that you're invested in how weird the faces are and how like blank they are. I mean, even the artists like, let's say like Philip Gustin or like Beckett, you know, where there's dealing with like somewhat horrifying, heavy subjects. In some ways to deal with those things directly head on, it would almost distance you too much, but to sort of inject some humor into it, it almost makes it easier to get closer to those subjects. It's absurdist. Yeah, definitely kind of feel like close affinity to like absurdist fiction, absurdist theater. And the uncanny thing, like, you know, again, it's something that keeps cropping up, sort of like feeling disconnected from your body, almost like stepping out of your own head. That's like a feeling that I'm sort of fascinated by. And yeah, David Lynch is definitely was an influence, you know, for a long time, like even starting in like high school, he was somebody I was really drawn to in like a really visceral way. But you used to be a painter. What, what happened? I did. I used to be a painter. I painted for a while. I did sort of maybe equally film and painting in college. And I went to grad school for painting and was mostly painting for a while. You know, I was sort of missing narrative. I was sort of trying to make narrative paintings. And it just wasn't feeling quite right. I guess when I started moving away from painting, I was looking at all these masks I had made as a kid that my mom had saved and there was something like really not self-conscious and loose and kind of open about them and that I sort of remade a few of those masks and then that led to uh acting with them shooting them I sort of you know it was kind of like a pretty gradual process good old moms yeah yeah it was nice of her to save all that stuff I've heard a lot of artists say you know they did something creative as a kid and you know as a kid it was just sort of straightforward let's do masks and then you made them and then as you became like creative, you want to be a grown up and you have to go through the sort of discipline process and like learn about art and you go to art school, you kind of make something that's like more like what we think of as art. And then in school or after a few years, you go back to that thing as a kid and the energy of that is actually kind of recenters like what you think is like actually cool and creative. And they make almost like a grown up version of that. Yeah, yeah. Video has been nice because it's so much more spread out than a painting, at least the way I've been doing it. I make a lot of stuff, you know, I'm shooting it over a few months. Like, it's a much more opened up process, at least for me, the way I've done it. I'm not really fixated on any one thing at any one time. I'm kind of thinking about, like, 30 different things all at once and kind of moving from one thing to the next. At least at that time when I started doing that, that was good for me to kind of really loosen up and not get stuck on any one object. Now, I mean, I think it's good to have a workflow where each project seems like a vacation from the other one. And since like your videos include like sculpture, photography, painting, probably writing, and then working with acting, you know, until it's down to the editing, you probably don't have to do any one thing over and over, right? Yeah, and they all sort of build kind of with each other, which again, for me, is sort of just a nice way to work. You know, it's sort of like they kind of all help each other and sort of gradually strengthen each other. And it's not about one, you know, object that has to carry the weight of a whole piece. Although I am, I'm doing a lot of sculpture and photo now, which which in a way is not that different process, but it's kind of like there's smaller parts that are all part of a larger project, but they're um, a little more discreet than in the videos. If they were shown in isolation, do you feel like a viewer would be getting not a full piece in some sense? No, I mean, I think um, the things I've been doing the past year or so, I feel, like, I feel like they stand on their own. Probably the more of it you see, maybe the more it adds up. You know, it's part of a larger project. I think it's sort of both. It stands on its own, but it kind of gets probably richer if you're seeing a bunch of things at once. Because it seems like a lot of artists kind of are moving into that way of working where they're a performance or a video artist, but they also make these objects. For some of them, the objects are very much like an artifact of the video maker persona. They're like a prop that showed up in that video that's kind of cool. And then for other ones, it could be shown on its own as the only thing for them and, and it's a separate thing. But I think a lot of them like want to hover because 
once your work is known, you can just be like, well, it is a statement by itself if you think it is. <laughs> and yeah, if it's yeah. not, I, I'll take that if, you know, you like it that way. The first few years when I was making the videos, it felt like all of the objects were for the videos. And I sort of didn't really want to show them alongside the videos because it felt sort of redundant. So I think I'm thinking about these a little bit differently. You know, they're starting as sculptures that are just doing their own thing and they're kind of feeding into photos and videos. But I think I'm thinking about them slightly, kind of more intentionally maybe than the things that were just for the videos. Yeah, slightly different, but part of a larger world, a larger project. I think they stand a bit more on their own. You said you were interested in them being a narrative and telling stories. What genre of storytelling would you consider it to be? I mean, in the videos I did, or most of the videos I've done, I've looked at a lot of short fiction, Japanese folk tales. Yeah. Are you a fan? <laughs> I am a fan. <laughs> the Japanese folk tales are amazing because they're there's no like clear cut moral usually. You know, the Western folk tales are, are usually tends to be like a very clear moral at the end, and the Japanese stories, it's sort of like nature seems to really. Is there one in particular that drew you in? There was a book I was reading a lot a few years ago, just collected short stories. I mean, there were a whole bunch, you know, but a lot of them tend to really sort of have these themes where like kind of nature takes over or nature sort of is a character. There's one, which is kind of a strange one where there's this guy who, he's, he's a worm, but he doesn't really know it. He's in the body of a person, but he's really a worm. It's sort of like, how do those two things come inside? And then someone suspects he's a worm and gives him this like walnut drink to drink. And then his warmness is revealed. So like a lot of kind of like <laughs> sounds like a Japanese folk tale. Surreal <laughs> sort of nature related threads that don't you know there wasn't there isn't really a moral to that story. It's not like if he had done something he would, something would have happened. It's just sort of these things just happen to to people and characters. And I just sort of liked that. Openness. And if you if you explain it to kids, they're just like, "Yep, that's how it is." Yeah, yeah. I mean, they definitely have a really dream. There's a really dream quality, you know, where it's not all leading to one thing. It's sort of very atmospheric and associative and really richly layered. I was using those a bit as a reference point, but a bunch of other stuff like Elizabeth Bishop, the poet, I've kind of taken, sort of borrowed a few images from her. Another video was based on the castle, the Kafka novel. And again, really loosely, just sort of taking bits and pieces. And with Kafka, you know, also sort of like thinking about the structure of the book and the sort of dis the disjointedness and you know the way things don't really quite all add up. I'm really kind of riffing off of that. A lot of times the videos seem to me to be about putting the viewer, no matter where they're from, giving you an impression it's from another country. No matter what country on planet Earth you're from, the video feels like it's from a different country. But not like from space, like not like a Martian video or like a Martian. It's foreign. Culture, but like it's somehow foreign. It's not like if you were an American, you'd be like, it's kind of Europe. And if you're European, you'd be like, no. And if you're like Pacific Island, like the mask, you'd be like, mm, that's not quite right. Like there's something about the way the masks and the the cultural artifacts are made seem to be trying to, to hover into like somewhere else. It's made by some other culture that's not yours. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I've thought about it in terms of like specific countries. I think I've really sort of tried to be pretty reductive, you know, strip things down to the point where the way maybe dreams kind of feel like, you know, you'll sort of be aware of a building in a dream, but you there'll be a lot of information missing. And sort of just the elements that are important to like that moment in the dream are more defined and then everything else kind of falls away a little bit. Influences like early Renaissance painting is a big influence. Like Piero, some of the masks are based on uh, Bellini portraits. Oh, um, so meaning you're looking at them and sketching yeah, them? Yeah, I'm sort of, I'll just kind of like keep an eye on them as I'm, you know, sort of looking for faces. I mean, there's something about the Bellinis where they're, there's a weird blankness to some of those faces. The weird blankness, it's like, there's an old Russian film experiment where they like show like a completely neutral actor's face, but then what you put around it makes it look like it's reacting in a certain way. Right, right, right. And like you have these like super neutral masks, and then as you're watching as a viewer, you're like, is it supposed to be spooky at this point or just funny or deadpan or like because of the neutrality of it? It's like they're in a painting. Yeah. Like something's been stylized image and now you're in it, then the painting's moving, but not totally, so the faces are still 
stuck and a lot of the objects don't reflect light because they're flat. And you're like, what if part of the painting moved but not all of it? Yeah, I like the idea that the masks really are like projection screens. You know, it's sort of this open thing that you can project anything you want onto them. And then I guess in that way, like the viewer really is sort of like a big part of the of how the story unfolds. I mean, do you ever feel like you have to walk the line where you have to give people just enough information to make them keep trying to interpret it instead of just going, oh, it's a video where crazy shit happens? Yeah, I mean, the storylines for me are important. You know, I mean, I think there's like themes that I'm pulling out of some of these stories, you know, certain feelings, certain associations, certain moods. There's definitely threads in there that I don't feel detached from the stories, but I sort of like that there's a certain openness too. The masks have a pretty wide range in terms of how you can light them. You know, I sort of make them in such a way that you can light them from one angle and they'll sort of have a certain expression and then you can light them a totally different way and they'll have a totally different expression. So they're not totally blank. I mean, I do sort of push that a little bit depending on where they fall in the story. But do you have like a very specific story and you just sort of leave it opener for the viewer than you know it is because you want to invite their interpretations? Or do you have consciously work in like little gaps in logic that even you are like, you know, this is a zone of weirdness on purpose. Usually I start with a pretty clear story in my mind, you know, which I'll cobble together from different sources. Sometimes while I'm shooting, things feel like they want to open up a little bit. Hmm. So it usually starts not very complicated, but somewhat clear. And then I, I don't always feel bound to it, but it's nice to have a place to start from. Are you storyboarding? Yeah, I usually storyboard. Sometimes I'll storyboard, sometimes I'll start by writing things out just words. Sometimes I'll start with just kind of drawing. Usually it's drawings and then just text and then eventually a little bit of storyboarding. There's some fun problem solving. I remember in an older one, somebody's bleeding in like the red cloth. Oh yeah. Cause it made me smile. Like, There's oh, a lot of visual like sort of like problems to solve, which yeah, which is nice. I mean, I think when I first started doing the videos, I was looking a lot at uh, George Melius, the early French filmmaker who did a lot of like trick photography. Yeah, he like did the journey to the moon and all that, right, black right. and white, like silent movies. Right, so that was something I was thinking about a lot. I've also really always been into early German expressionist film, like Fritz Lang and Murnau and okay. the constructed stylized spaces and storylines. And you know, this just this idea of creating this whole really elaborate world that the rules are not necessarily following the rules that we think of, you know, nature following every day, but they feel complete. They feel like the rules make sense within themselves. Yeah, like those people fit that place. But like in Dr. Caligari, black and white is used to sort of smooth the transition between real people and these backgrounds because the black, it was so stark. Whereas I feel like you let the seams show in cases like we're like, this is obviously cardboard. They weren't so much interested in the fact that they were created as much as like creating a new reality. Whereas I feel like a like awareness of the createdness of the whole story is is built in, it seems like in a lot of these cases. You want us to see that things are made of janky things in some cases, and then in other cases it's like a special effect. Like, oh, that that wave is a sheet. Yeah, I mean I guess I like the idea of pushing that as far as I can. And sort of the idea that you can see that this thing is totally constructed, but you just buy it anyway. Sort of like this weird counter purposes feeling where you shouldn't buy into the story or the fiction, but you almost can't help it. You get seduced. Like, I sort of like playing with that line, I think. I mean, I think a big part of that is just going like, a person made this on purpose and it took work. <laughs> so you're like, all right, I'm going to interpret it, right? Like, you look at it, you're like, obviously, like, the buildings or whatever, like, they took a long time to make and they're all painted. Yeah. Whatever's going to happen after the next five minutes, someone really, really, really was trying hard to make that thing happen. <laughs> yeah. Is that important to you? Well, I guess, I mean, in a larger, more general way, just the idea that we're constantly always constructing our surroundings every second. You know, we're sort of taking these bits and pieces of random elements and then making this seamless whole, just as human beings. Instinctually, that's what we want to do. You know, you can think of it that way. Like, it's sort of this very constructed space. In a way, it's not so different than what we're always doing just in real life. What's your biggest concern or worry right now about these? What, what are you worried about, about making these successful? I've sort of taken a little break from the videos and, you know, mostly dealing with photo, sculpture. And I think when I go back to the videos, it feels like it'd be nice to sort of be less linear, less feeling like tied to a, a linear story or plot, you know, kind of letting things get even more 
atmospheric, associative, kind of thinking even more about describing things in, in the way that we think about things as human beings, you know, sort of in a not particularly coherent way sometimes. Just opening things up. I mean, I also want to kind of play around more with different kinds of animation. You know, in the photos, I've been making sculptures and then 3D scanning them and then bringing the models into Photoshop. I'm, I'm looking at a picture of these glasses that have the pieces that go behind your ears. Uh-huh. They're going in two different directions as if two people can wear them at once and then right. they'll just have to kiss each other. Right, right. It's kind of funny. Right. And of course, I just look at it and try to figure out, like, how are people going to wear this? Right, right. <laughs> Maybe that's an example of something that's psychologically charged but also so ridiculous that it's like it's sort of an escape valve. But if you really take the time to think about it, it, it is somewhat horrifying. Like, where are the nose is going to go? It's like too close. <laughs> it's too much. It's sort of like uncomfortably close. Right. That's not that horrifying. It's like it might just be some uncomfortable glasses. Yeah, well, you know? well, maybe that tells you more about me. Like, I might have to yeah, share but... these glasses with a stranger. Right, so maybe not horrifying, but definitely maybe unsettling. I don't know. I know some people that would be horrified, you yeah, know, yeah. if you're a little neurotic. That's the Rorschach test. But there's also, in those photos, there's the figure, the thing going on, like in the foreground. But there's these background which have like certain kind of colors, which seem to reference a sort of weirdly shoddy, illustrative dream space, but that is also genuine and dreamy, you know, sort of like pinky purples and background colors. In the photos, what's presented is like almost a cartoony simplicity. It's just this little figure and there's a little shadow. But then the background is like this colorful thing that's kind of giving it a depth. Yeah. But there's a commercial depth. Like, I feel like the atmosphere around them is very artificialized. I mean, I sort of wanted them to feel very disorienting. You know, I mean, I sort of like that they feel a little bit fleshy, you know, like these pinkish colors. You know, you might almost just be zoomed in like on a figure or inside a figure. And it's just this fleshy landscape that's part landscape part figure. And I also just like that there's no clear time of day. Like you just really can't locate yourself in any way, which I guess is part of the, the idea. Would you consider these a narrative, these photographs and models? Yeah. And I think they all sort of start feeding into each other. I think there's less of a plot, but I do think that the objects start to become characters. I think from one image to the next, you start to get these more open-ended narratives. So yeah, I think it's definitely related to the videos, but it's a slightly different kind of narrative. You know, I think it's in some ways it's more about fleshing out a world. Right? You're, so you're describing them as a narrative, but also people are going to be disoriented. Those are working against each other, these two ideas. So you're trying to find a balance between the two. Like, you want to tell us a story, you want to disorient us. What do you want to do? <laughs> your impulse is always to kind of clean everything up, make everything make sense, have everything be neat. You know, I think it's sort of maybe just an interesting place to be where you're kind of, you're almost making a sort of solid, simplified whole, but then you keep getting pulled out and you keep getting drawn back in. I mean, I sort of, I'm interested in that space. Well, that's like a dream space. You're convinced of meaning, then you wake up, there's no meaning, but then you look back and go, oh, wait, it's a dream and it's in my head. So maybe it, you don't know which things are incidental and which things are meaningful. It's almost like a classic art space in that there are all these characteristics of the object that may or may not be carrying information that you need to pay attention to. So you just keep looking back at it, looking for more and more out of it because it's not clear why or what exactly, but if it's compelling, you keep going. Maybe there's something else in this. Maybe the way this is. Yeah, I read Solaris, the Lem book, I guess maybe a year ago, somewhere around there. And on this planet, right? It's a sci-fi book that Tarkovsky made the, uh, the film of. And there's this giant ocean which has a consciousness. And anytime anyone kind of comes near this ocean, it can see the images in the person's mind and it remakes those images out of like the pink foamy substance of the ocean. But it has no emotional connection to those objects. So if it's remaking, let's say a piano, it'll leave out half of the keys. There's no emotional connection, so it doesn't have a sense of the whole thing or how the parts fit together. It's just sort of like spitting out this reproduction of the thing kind of mindlessly. I don't know, somehow that image was compelling. You know, in some ways maybe it's a bit like the computers. You can make it do all these things. It can sort of make all these decisions on its own in a way, but there's no person behind the computer that has an emotional relationship to all the parts. Whereas we're the opposite, sort of constantly trying to put meaning where it doesn't necessarily exist. We're trying to make things a complete whole where they really aren't. That was a big influence on these images. And I guess even those weird pinky, murky backdrops probably relate to that image of that ocean also. Are you trying to like create these images that 
they have a story, but then the way you're showing them, you're almost trying to subtract as much of the naturalness out of them as possible so that we're just sort of stuck with interpreting things with less emotional information. Maybe. I think I have to think about that. The faces do that, right? Instead of having an actor looking around doing things, you're subtracting all the emotions out by putting a mask, right? Right, right. And then when you have these buildings, they're buildings without... I doubt that they would evoke a memory of a specific place as much as an attachment to almost any city. Like, it seems like there's anonymizing going on. Yeah, I think that sounds good. I buy that. Bingo! <laughs> I'll take that. You can use that in the next press release. There's an image of arrows, which is just kind of sitting above us, so I'm just looking at it. The background's a photo, the images are 3D scans. It's like all these layers and layers of, like, I'm making a sculpture of an arrow. I kind of like that the arrow could be a symbol, it could be an actual object that you shoot. Have you ever hear that joke? He's like, I fucking hate arrows, man. You get killed by an arrow, cops come look at you, and they just like, oh. And they look away because <laughs> it's an arrow. No idea. What the fuck is that? Because the arrow is pointing somewhere else. Yeah, I've never exactly. heard that one. It's a famous bit by the fucking. I feel like it needs something else, that joke. It's not quite there. <laughs> it's just kind of weird and funny. <laughs> There's a lot of potential. It's really funny when he tells it because he's a comedian, unlike myself. Why are you making sculptures? Couldn't you just do this whole thing on the computer? I sound like my dad now. Computer. I mean, I guess I just like the strangeness of like this handmade, well-crafted thing that gets scanned and becomes like very impersonal, but has like almost like the residue of this really handmade, like really tactile object. You're sort of taking it through all these different processes and there's sort of like a trail of really specific tactile human hand sort of touching this thing, making this thing. But then there's a real coldness because it goes to this computerized scanning process. Well, I mean, that seems to remind me of all your backgrounds you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. You're like drawing all these books and like shelves and little pieces of furniture and then MTV's just taking it and like putting Keisha in front of it. And you're supposed to pay attention to what Keisha says, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's yeah, maybe. I should revisit that stuff. That particular project was so long ago that it feels like another lifetime, but it might be time to revisit it. There might be something in there. Your work is talking about, there's like this tremendous alienation or introspection that you're describing and disconnection, but your life sounds really nice and cool. Things went well, more or less, with some bumps, but there's definitely an enemy there, right? That seems like like a little bit of um the workaday artist's lament. They're making the things carefully by hand. I mean, they're not personality lists, those backgrounds. And then they're slotted into this sort of anonymized narrative. Well, are we talking about the TV show? Are we talking about, or are we talking about the <laughs> photos? <laughs> yeah, you have to ask, right? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, in both cases. You know, I think my animation past is definitely floating in there somewhere, for sure. While you were doing that, was it just a paycheck for you? Or were you actually putting some heart and soul into it? Well, I think it's hard to separate the two. You're still creating something, so... Sure. It looks like a thing that, unless you started to enjoy it, it would be boring. There's things that are drawn, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, no, it was a pretty nice gig, like, right after school. Yeah. I had a lot of creative freedom. That was really nice. And I was doing this thing, too, back then, where I was drawing objects and then dropping photos of flat textures, you know, like taking pictures of like a wall or clouds, like these flat texture photographs, and then dropping them into the outlines. That's kind of fleshing out the world a little bit that way. So it's a little disorienting where you get this drawing of, let's say, like a chair, and then there's like a photo of a wall that fills in that drawing. So in some ways, it was actually kind of like a fun, creative process. Yeah, I mean, it beats my right out of school job, I think. Mitch Hedberg was the guy who hates arrows, by the way. Okay, I'm going to look that up. That's going to be part of my shtick now. Okay, so the arrows photo, how do you make that? It looks like a painting. So the arrows themselves are these 3D scans, which the background is a photo. And then in the foreground, these arrows are 3D scans, which you can bring into Photoshop and kind of move them around in 3D space, even though it's in Photoshop. You can kind of put any skin or it's called a texture map you can sort of bring the object in and then you could put the original texture map back on the arrow that was on the original object or you could put anything else so the answer is computers definitely computers <laughs> yeah it's definitely yeah. photoshop heavy but it wasn't like a studio photo that's just like lit perfectly no, it's definitely very 3d model heavy it's definitely a few processes and then the, all the shadows in the photos are made in photoshop so you kind of bring these 3d models into photoshop and then you set up lights and then those cast the shadows. So the shadows don't exist 
anywhere in real life. You know, they only exist in Photoshop. Yeah, they seem like almost like you're taking things that are minor or background characters in imagery and you're kind of giving them a, a moment in the spotlight in those photos. Yeah, I sort of like the idea of taking these really dumb, simple objects that are so familiar you don't even think twice. Or again, like with the arrows, it's almost like they're almost a platonic ideal of an arrow. It's like almost just a symbol, but then sort of trying to find the strangeness in that. Everything you take for granted about an object like that, sort of trying to tease that out and make it feel really loaded and have a lot of personality. And There's something really beautiful about some of them. There's a really specific kind of art that kind of got produced a lot in the 80s. Sort of bronze sculpture of something very simple with a simple object sitting on it and it would be like advertising art in America and it'd be some guy you never heard of. A discarded watch laying on a bronze plane. They're almost like refer to that while being much better and more beautiful and weirder than that. Do you know what the kind of art I'm talking about? Like a super middle brow existentialism. It sounds like a watered down Jasper Johns or something from what you're saying. I'm trying to picture it. Yeah, it's not a specific artist. It's like 300 artists that are advertising the margin of magazines. There'll be like a lantern <laughs> just on a plinth that's like this big and then it has a ragged edge. It sounds pretty bad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's something that puts them in a weirder space than that. Right, right. There's something very middle-brow sad about that art. That, that was the point of it. Right. You know, somebody who had a beach house would buy it, and it would cost like five or $600. Okay. So the person's a working artist. But, right. like, that kind of art. It's like a whole genre of art like that got made in the 80s, like sort of surrealism light. Right. But this is like... It somehow has like a much weirder, creepier edge to it because you've pulled the color and pulled the texture and pushed the weirdness of the space just off kilter from that. So it doesn't just feel like, oh, just a little lantern shattered on the beach by itself. I don't know where to go with this. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of vaguely picturing what you're talking about, but it, it sounds it sounds bad. <laughs> and, I, and I definitely think of these things as, as pretty dumb, sort of. I always think of myself as making really great versions of the dumbest idea ever. Yeah. Paint your girlfriend. Who doesn't do that? There's a million cheesy artists doing that, and I just do it really, really well, I hope. Yeah. I think the fact that these are dumb objects, at least for these pieces, is a big part of it. It's just things that are almost throwaway objects, things that you sort of don't even think twice about necessarily. But if you start looking closely, kind of weird things opening up. Well, rather than these artists from the 80s that Zach's talking about, what artists were you looking at that made you come to this? On purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Philip Gustin was somebody I was oh, okay. thinking a lot about. I mean, and I guess in a pretty direct way, like these dumb, simple objects. Wise-ass art, is it? Oh, maybe. Is it? I don't know. I always think Gustin's a wise-ass art. It's kind of like, yeah, I mean, they're funny, but they're so, like, thoughtful, I think. You know, they're very, like, heartfelt. They're super sincere, but they're also kind of ridiculous. And they're just so tactile. Each object really feels like it has, like, such a strong personality. You know, whether it's an extension of himself or they really just have their own life. You know. So you're taking something that's, like, marginalized and you're giving it weight. Just the idea that there's so much in everything that gets really kind of strange and peculiar the deeper you look. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about physics and quantum mechanics and all that stuff and just sort of what's going on at like a very small, small level and just sort of like the insanity of how things are put together and like how things move through space. I think that's in there too. To me, the one of the arrow that's like going through two stone chunks, uh -huh. that seems to be like that to me. It's almost a diagram. I can imagine that. Yeah be on the cover of a very awesome, thoughtful book about physics. Right. The texture's on there, and then just the way it's like on a flat plane and it's an arrow, in the sentence of like an arrow, and you're talking about physics and how arrows go through things, but you're also, it's like an arrow and it's an indexical symbol right. pointing to something at the same time. And I mean, and that was like a dumb joke. I guess the idea with that was this arrow's shooting through a brick and it's almost like shot off the skin of the brick which is in front of the brick. You know, it is almost like this ridiculous moment of something physical happening which could never actually happen. In some ways, it's like a visual joke, but in some ways, it's very viscerally real in its own way. It's almost like a concretized cartoon. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about cartoons, like the early Fleischer Brother cartoons, where everything's just constantly in flux and fluid and all the objects are kind of alive and figures are always sort of turning into objects. You know, there's a couple kind of early Betty Boop cartoons where things just kind of go completely bonkers. Like the laws of physics just get completely thrown out the door. And I've always sort of been drawn to that. Gary Panter said those are the only cartoons he can watch. 
when he was on our show. Yeah, they're amazing. He liked the loops yeah. of things he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. There's something just like weirdly expansive about them. So you were working in animation. You did Roz, Shast. You did the MTV backgrounds. Did you do anything else? I did this thing which never really went that far, which was called Velociraptor Substitute Teacher. <laughs> How did that not go? Was this before know. the internet? Because that's the only explanation. I think this was right when the internet was like starting. This was like, you know, an early web series and it just never took off. That needs to come back. Did you get a kill fee at least? I don't think I got paid at all for that. I think uh, I got, I think I was going to like promised riches if it did well. You know, I had like a few friends who I sort of was able to hire and they got paid, but I don't think I actually got paid oh, at no. all. It was okay. I mean, maybe it was like a month of work. Maybe. Did you do background? What did you do for that? I sort of did basically the art direction I did. Oh, wow. Backgrounds and figures and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and basically every episode, the Velociraptor just eats all the children. I can see why maybe they didn't pick it up. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a deeply fleshed out project. It's a pretty good idea for like, you know, a short. Yeah. Then they probably went into someone executive's office. He's like, ongoing series. <laughs> Yeah, sadly, it just never took off. You know, maybe it'll get resurrected. Can we find this on YouTube, perhaps? I've never tried to look for it. I don't know why. I probably could dig up a copy of it somewhere, but it's been years since I've even thought about it. Yeah, then what? Did you go from animation to, like, just showing, or what else did you do after that? I was doing animation for a while. My first show was in 2001. It was pretty soon after school, so that was nice. That was a painting show. did some more animation. I've done a lot of teaching. I've mostly done teaching over the years. Are you teaching painting, video? What are you teaching? Well, right now I'm teaching design, animation, and foundations. I've taught some painting. I've taught some sculpture. But I've taught a lot of digital. I've taught a lot of like Photoshop and Illustrator, sort of design classes and video classes too, and actually drawing too. So a bunch of different things. Did you tell your animation students about the Velociraptor substitute? No, no. Again, it's been a while since I've even thought about it. I should dig all that stuff up. I think we skip that in my class usually, but maybe it's time to dust it off. What about the ones that are like construct, those really super minimalist ones? Yeah, those were kind of the first photos where I was really thinking about them as photos and completely separate from video and kind of really trying to move away from narrative code. And in some ways those were a lot about doing experiments with light and thinking a lot about the computer, you know, like the, the computer was sort of like a big part of those, like using the, the dumb tools in Photoshop, creating these gaps and then having the computer try to fill them in and playing just a lot with light, you know, and really just trying to treat photo as its own distinct thing from a more kind of narrative storytelling. And in some ways those kind of led into what I'm doing now, like the narrative elements and the figurative elements have sort of crept back in. It sounds like you're doing a lot of problem solving you're you're trying things out is that important to your artwork that you sort of don't know what you're doing exactly how is this going to turn out well definitely i mean i don't want to just execute an idea or illustrate an idea i think i sort of want to be working things out as i'm going and i don't want to make sure things don't become stale you know sort of just keep moving forward and in the videos yeah i mean in some ways there is a fair amount of problem solving and a lot of them are based on fiction. And, you know, it's part of what's nice about fiction is this idea that you're sort of creating this image in your mind as you're reading something that can't really exist. You have these things that can't coexist in a book, but they can kind of coexist in your mind. And I sort of like the idea of trying to put that into visual terms. It's never going to quite work out in a perfect way to sort of take this thing which can't really take a visual form and try to make it a visual form and sort of figure out how to push it as close as you can to containing all these different paradoxes and these different levels of image and meaning at once. What do you feel like is the best environment to view these in? I'm asking because I feel like certain art needs a little bit of space around it, a little bit of quiet. What's the best environment for your like perfect way to see these? What would you say that it was? For the videos? Uh, sure. I guess like a nice big projection in a dark space is always really nice. The more you can block out the world, the better. I think they do work on screens too. It sort of just maybe depends on the context. But I think given the option, I would probably project them. If you ever have the photos in like a group show, do you ever go, oh, this is not a good space? Or do you feel like they handle themselves? I think I'm pretty open about that. I think like with the photos, they'll start having some relationship to whatever's near them. But I think sometimes that can be interesting. I think once they go out into the world, I think they can fend for themselves usually. Some of the photos work well with each other because they start to build off of each other. So that's always nice too. But I, I don't think it has to be a one specific way. You know, that's sort of like a bonus. I teach little kids. One thing I always tell them, the great thing about sculpture is you can stand on this side and you can stand on this side and you can look around and on top, but you're, you're taking that away with your sculptures. 
Well, but I think the sculptures exist on their own, too. They sort of take on this other life in the photos. I mean, the sculptures are pieces in themselves, so I guess there's that option. You know, there's a way to experience them that way. And then I guess with the photos, it's almost like you're looking through a window at these things. There's sort of like a remoteness that happens in the photos. You know, I think when you're looking at the sculptures directly, they're sort of more tactile, they inhabit the space. It's just a very different way to experience them. To me, those photos seem so much about the space. Like, what is even is this space? Like, is it inside your head somewhere? Or is it a space that's made of the computer? Or is it a space that's made of like some off-screen backwater of like a commercial? Like that question is really important to me in those. So I don't go like, oh, I wanna see the other side of the arrow. I'm more interested in like, what even is that weird plane of existence that these things are happening on? It's like almost like a sci-fi universe. Those worlds are kind of so different that, um, yeah, I think they're doing pretty different things. You know, the photos versus the sculptures. I mean, I feel like they're different enough you know, they could be shown together and they're sort of doing such different things that I don't think it's redundant to look at them together. Well, John, we've been talking for a little more than an hour. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, guys. This has been great. Yeah. It's been nice to catch up with you guys. Uh, thank you so much, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, John Ehrenberg's latest work at a group show on the digital billboard at 10 Times Square, New York, called 24-7. This is an ongoing exhibit. He'll also be in a group exhibition titled Ami Omo at the Barbara Walters Gallery at Sarah Lawrence College from January 25th through March 4th, 2018. And last but definitely not least, Jonathan will be in a group show at Temnikova and Casella Gallery in Tallinn, Estonia. The show is titled Anybody Suspended in Space Will Remain in Space Until Made Aware of Its Situation. That show is opening February 14th and will be up until April 14th, 2018. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. Also, John has... I've been working on the book for the past few years about Puerto Rican revolutionaries in 1950. The book is called The Puerto Rican War. It's entirely carved in wood and it's tells of the progress of how Puerto Rican revolutionaries tried to kill the president. I can hear you through the headphones. You can hear me through the headphones. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon set up. We have goodies available for donor donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can at patreon.com backslash We Eat Art, all one word. We Eat Art is produced by Ping and mnemonic recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. With editing help from Colin Wamsgans. Everybody, come on, do you think? Everybody, get up and dance and sing. <laughs>